0: Uh, scripture reading is uh, Ephesians 2, the verses 11 to 22. <clears throat> Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body, by human hands, remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ. "'excluded from citizenship in Israel, "'and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, "'without hope and without God in the world. "'But now, in Christ Jesus, "'you who once were far away "'have been brought near by the blood of Christ. "'For he himself is our peace, "'who has made the two groups one "'and has destroyed the barrier.' to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
1: see all of you. Thanks for having me back. I've only ever preached at the evening service here at Blessing, so it's good to see all of your faces this morning. In his uh, memoir, Where the Light Fell, the Christian author Philip Yancey writes of growing up as a white child in Atlanta, Georgia in the 50s and 60s a time of great instability and tumult in America. This is a period of racial segregation, the civil rights movement, and challenging attempts at integrating blacks and whites in American society and culture and in churches. Yancey tells of how a young student from the all-black school, the Carver Bible Institute, applied for membership at his all-white church. The student's name was Tony Evans, who who is now a well-known author and pastor. His membership request sparked a big debate in Yancey's church. In the end, his membership was denied. And Yancey remarks, Our church doesn't mind a few well-behaved black people attending. They just can't be members. The story of racism in America rightly grieves and perplexes us. And to this day, the problem of racism and racial tensions runs high in the streets of and churches of our southern neighbors. And it's easy for us who live in Canada to think we have it better than our neighbors to the south. But while our nation's story is different, it is nevertheless filled with horrors and pain involving racism especially against the indigenous peoples of our land, it is deeply sad to come face-to-face with the reality that churches in Canada were responsible for so much pain in the lives of our indigenous neighbors. The wound is still fresh, and Canadian churches and Christians are still collectively coming to terms with a painful reality of racism, not only in the world, but in the church, in us. But racism isn't a modern phenomenon. From the moment that sin came into the world, people have devalued, denigrated, marginalized, enslaved, and even killed others because of racial, tribal, cultural differences. It was no different in the time of the Apostle Paul. Verne Poythress said, the hardest barrier between people in the first century was the religious and cultural differences between Jews and Gentiles. That is, the non-Jews. And here's how John Stott characterized the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the first century. He said, it is difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf, which yawned in those days between the Jews and, on the one hand and the Gentiles on the other. But choosing and blessing the Jews, God intended to bless all the families of the earth, Genesis 12. The tragedy was that Israel twisted this doctrine of election into one of favoritism, became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised the Gentiles as dogs, and developed traditions that kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile. This is the cultural reality in which the Gentile Ephesians Became Christians. And it had it a had huge impact on the Jewish Gentile relationships in the early church, which was often filled with tension and animosity. So, what then does the gospel have to say about racism and racial tensions? In the remarkable passage, you just heard read, the Apostle Paul lays out the foundational groundwork for the church to pursue racial, tribal, and cultural reconciliation and peace. The church can and must pursue racial reconciliation because Christ is one, bringing us near, verses 11 to 13. Second, Christ is breaking barriers in verses 14 to 18, and he's building us together, verses 19 to 22. First, the church can and must pursue racial reconciliation because Christ is bringing us near. In the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2, we read of humanity's dreadful condition apart from Christ both Jews and Gentiles, when they were without Christ. But Paul speaks of the great reversal that Christ accomplished, the new and glorious new life that all believers have by grace through faith. And here in verses 11 to 13, we see the particular alienation that was unique to the Gentiles when they were without Christ. You see, the Gentiles experienced a double alienation, not just from God, which we all experienced without Christ, but also from Israel, God's ancient people. Paul writes in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. You see, the sign of circumcision was a very important physical identity marker for the Jews of Paul's day. Circumcision marked them out as the distinct, privileged people of God, in contrast to the Gentiles, whom the Jews disparagingly called the uncircumcision. In fact, a group of Jews in 2nd century BC chose to be executed rather than cease the practice of circumcision as ordered by the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes. And the Gentiles, in turn, looked upon the Jews with suspicion and contempt, which resulted in growing anti-Semitism all throughout the Roman Empire. And Paul confirms in verse 12 that this barrier was not merely imaginary. The alienation was real. Without Christ, the Gentiles were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, alienated from the covenants, and alienated from hope in God. First, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. The term commonwealth here refers to the community of people whom God had gathered and governed as the nation of Israel, granting them good and just laws, provisions for worship, citizenship rights, privileges, and responsibilities. At our church, New City Church, over the last five to six years, we've been working to sponsor a refugee family from Afghanistan. They're currently living as refugees in Tajikistan with no legal rights, facing regular threats of deportation from corrupt officials, no rights to education, no protection, no jobs. Apart from Christ, Paul tells the Gentile Ephesians, "That is what your life was like in relation to God." people. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were also alienated from the covenants. Israel was first and foremost a covenant people. Their ethnic identity was grounded in the solemn vows that God had made with Abraham, promising to bless him and his descendants to make him a blessing to all the families of the earth. This wasn't the only covenant that God made. He made covenants with Noah, with Moses, with Israel, with David. But Paul here in verse 12 writes that these multiple covenants ultimately expressed one promise, the promise which was embodied and fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. Apart from Christ, the Gentiles remained strangers and aliens to God's covenant promises and a hope of the Messiah. And third, they were alienated from hope in God. Paul writes that they were without God. He uses a Greek word atheos from which we get the English word atheist. Ironically, the Gentiles of the Greco-Roman world who worshiped many gods spoke disdainfully of Jews and Christians as atheists because Jews and Gentiles, sorry, Jews and Christians refused to bow to any God who wasn't the God of Israel. Yet it was the Gentiles who were truly without God because the gods they worshipped were false gods who offered only false hopes. Apart from Christ, the Gentiles were alienated from true hope found in the one true God. This is a truly bleak picture that the Apostle Paul paints of the Gentiles but it pales in comparison to what God has done for the Gentiles in Christ. So what did he do? He drew them near. Verse 13, but now in Christ, Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Being brought near is a picture of reconciliation. It is the removal of the barriers that alienated the Gentiles from God and from his people, it is an invitation to outsiders to come in and to be part of the household of Christ. And how are they brought near? By the blood, the blood of Christ. You see, in the old Jewish sacrificial system, the priests were required to sprinkle everything with blood, with the blood of an animal sacrifice, the altar, the bowls, And the people, the blood signified that our sins always incur a cost. And only those who are sprinkled with blood could be admitted into the presence of God. But this was a mere shadow. A preview of the greater and final sacrifice that would wash away our sin once and for all. Only the precious life of the sinless Son of God could pay the price for our sin. And that is exactly what Christ did. He wiped away our sins by His self-sacrifice on the cross. But that's not all He did. Paul tells the Gentiles that God did all this in Christ Jesus. If your faith is in Christ, you are not just forgiven. You have been united to Christ. Everything God gives to Christ, He gives to you. In Christ, your primary identity is no longer your racial or cultural heritage, your nationality, your gender, your social status, your online status, your political affiliation, or even your religious tradition. Your primary identity is in Christ. You are one with Christ. and It is this new primary identity in Christ that forms the basis of all true reconciliation and peace, including the reconciliation between different races and tribes and cultures in the church. But the question remains, how does the sacrifice of Jesus and our union with Christ bring about corporate reconciliation? Christ brings us near by breaking barriers. Breaking barriers in verses 14 to 18. Paul writes in verse 14 that Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. When Paul wrote these words, he may have been recalling the unforgettable incident recorded in Acts chapter 21, where Paul was falsely accused of bringing a Gentile into the inner courts of the temple temple where only Jews were permitted access. This is from Acts 21 verse 29. And as a result of this false accusation, the Apostle Paul was beaten by his fellow Jews. He was arrested. He barely escaped with his life. Now, Go ahead and put uh, put the next slide up. In order to cross from the court of the Gentiles into the inner court of the temple, you had to pass through a series of four-and-a-half-foot-high stone barriers that separated the two distinct parts of the temple complex. And at regular intervals along these barriers... Dire warnings were inscribed on stone tablets that forbid the Gentiles from entering. Two of these inscriptions have been discovered, and here is what they say. No stranger or alien is to enter within the balustrade, the balustrade is those stone barriers, around the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death." This barrier that physically separated the Gentiles from God's people was symbolic of the hostility that spiritually separated Jews from Gentiles. And the incredible news that Paul is announcing here is that Jesus in his flesh, that is his bodily life and death, Jesus has become our peace by destroying the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, What does that mean? What was this dividing wall of hostility and how did he destroy it? Verses 15 and 16. Jesus destroyed the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one New man in place of the two, so making peace. The word abolish here means to invalidate, to make powerless. And the law here refers to the ceremonial laws for offering sacrifices that I referred to earlier. The laws for purity that permitted Jews to draw near to God, but kept the Gentiles out. Jesus, in his 33 years of perfect obedience and in his final sacrificial death on the cross, became the one and only mediator, the final high priest by whom all people, both Jews and Gentiles, can now enter the presence of God with boldness. No longer would ceremonial and ethnic differences be grounds for pride, arrogance, exclusion, and hostility between those who are in Christ. Both Jews who were near and Gentiles who were far now drawn near to God in the exact same way through the blood of Christ. The dividing wall is down. The barrier is broken. The ground has been leveled. No longer would non-Jews be relegated to the sidelines. Every person by faith in Christ now has full and equal access to God. But that's not all. Not only has Christ broken down the barrier of hostility, he is in himself creating a new humanity. Did you catch that? He has broken the barrier. He has abolished the ceremonial laws that, that, that excluded non-Jews so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Verse 15. Throughout history, societies have struggled to answer this question. How can people of different races and cultures live together in harmony? In Canada, the metaphor of the mosaic, the mosaic has been used to describe a kind of multiculturalism, where a wide variety of ethnic groups can maintain their cultural distinctives while functioning as parts of the whole. In America, the metaphor of the melting pot has been used to describe a different approach where different cultures are are fused together with each new culture being assimilated into the receiving culture. But the gospel vision of reconciliation is neither of those things. It is not a mosaic, it is not a melting pot, or a salad bowl, or a kaleidoscope. The gospel doesn't demand that Gentiles become more Jewish, or that the Jews become more Gentile. The gospel is much more than just coexistence. The vision of gospel reconciliation is nothing less than the creation of one new human race in Christ that is being transformed and renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not fusion. It's not a mosaic. It's something new. It's something better. It's the miracle of the transforming, reconciling work of the Holy Spirit in Christ. And when Paul speaks here of the one new man, he's not saying that every difference is erased so that we all become identical and uniform. There are good things and broken things to be found in every culture. And in the creation of a new human race in Christ, he is restoring and renewing every aspect of every people while retaining the goodness of the variety and diversity that is inherent in creation. How do we know that? In a picture of the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we see that God's redeemed people will be from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. You see, these secondary differences, these secondary distinctives are renewed and retained in the new creation. They're not erased. And this is what makes the gospel so unique, so different, and so much more beautiful than every human solution to racial tensions. The gospel doesn't try to erase the differences between people as some people have tried. The gospel doesn't elevate the importance of race or ethnic differences to the level of ultimate importance as some have tried. Rather, the gospel says that while our differences are not nothing, they are not everything. What is everything is that Christ is creating one new humanity from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation in a beautiful display of His power and grace. This past summer, about 40 people from our church gathered in my backyard, my small backyard, for a prayer and praise night. At one point, I I looked up and my heart swelled with joy as I looked around and I saw and heard my brothers from Zimbabwe, Liberia, South Sudan, Egypt, China, Indonesia, Korea, the Netherlands, Canada, and the U.S., all lifting their voices and hearts together in united praise of our great God, I still look back to that beautiful summer evening and I tear up with joy. And I pray, Lord, thank you. Thank you for giving me this beautiful vision of heaven, of Revelation 7. Friends, as our nation, as our world and our churches grieve and wrestle with the problem of racism, today it is essential that we fill our hearts, that we fill our minds with this beautiful vision of gospel reconciliation and unity that God paints for us in the Bible. The work of reconciliation is too hard. It's too complex. It's too fraught with pain for us to try to pursue without a compelling vision, a compelling vision of what God has done and is doing that will fill our grieving hearts with hope and longing. And here in Ephesians 2, God gives us this compelling vision. So, so friends, soak it in. Remember this. Picture it. And pray that God would give you more and more of it in our churches. That he will give us the eyes to see and to rejoice in what is and what could be. A church can pursue racial reconciliation because Christ has brought us near he has broken down barriers, and he is building us up together. As we see in verses 19 to 22, he is building up Jews and Gentiles, people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, into a sacred dwelling place for the very presence of God, where he will dwell. Let me finish with a couple of applications. First, we must continue to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel of reconciliation to a world that is hurting and divided because only the gospel gives real hope for true peace. Only the gospel gives real hope for true peace. The gospel of the broken wall, the gospel that brings us near and builds us up together, the gospel must be front and center in the church's life and message. And as part of of our gospel proclamation, we must affirm that any attempts at segregation or exclusion or the preferential treatment of any people based on their racial and cultural differences is sin. And contrary, not only to the original design of of people who bear the image of God, it is also contrary to the God, to the glorious work that God is doing to create one new human race in Christ as we have just read. Therefore what God has joined together let no person separate. I've said that at many weddings, and Jesus spoke those words regarding marriages, but he could just as well have been speaking of the union of Jews and Gentiles, different races and tribes and cultures in his church. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no person separate. Now, You might might be thinking, that sounds nice, that sounds idyllic, but it sounds a little naive. How can the gospel, even the gospel, possibly overcome the kind of racial evil that has taken place? How can we possibly overcome the trauma of the mass kidnappings of Africans and their forced slavery in America? How can we overcome the trauma of residential schools in Canada? How can we overcome the trauma of apartheid in South Africa? It all just seems so daunting. It'll take a miracle. And indeed it will. And that is precisely what the gospel of Christ offers. It offers a miracle. And one of the most amazing miracles that we have seen in the miracle is the miracle of the African-American church. What else would you call it? When you witness an enslaved and oppressed people who choose to adopt their enslavers' faith and make it their own. James Weldon Johnson, an African-American writer and civil rights activist in the early part of the 20th century, wrote in the preface to a book of spiritual songs, listen to what he says, at the precise moment of their oppression, African slaves found the precise religion for their condition. Christianity was a religion that spoke to their condition of being enslaved. And out of their condition rose a body of music that offers lament to God. It's a miracle. We must continue to preach and demonstrate in our churches, in our homes, in our communities, the gospel of reconciliation in Christ. It is the only real hope for true, lasting peace. And secondly, the church must ensure that it does not build or maintain cultural barriers that diminish, displace, or distract from the gospel. By God's mercy, I have not experienced too many egregious forms of racism in my lifetime. To be sure, um, growing up in Toronto in the 80s and 90s as an immigrant from South Korea, who could not speak a word of English. I heard my share of racial epithets and uh, remarks about my physical appearances or my speech, and like most kids, I just wanted to fit in. And pretty soon, I started to hate what I looked like, what I sounded like. I wanted to be Canadian, no matter what that meant. Over the years, I have met many kind-hearted, well-meaning people who would speak to me very, very loudly and very, very slowly so I could, I could understand him. One gentleman once told me, quite recently actually, very helpfully, that he could not believe that the church would allow an Asian man to be a pastor of a non-Asian church. Most of my experiences have been in this category of many small, almost invisible reminders that kept telling me that I am and will always remain an outsider that I will never fully belong. Friends, it is the easiest thing in the world for us to become blind to the personal preferences and traditions that serve us well, even in our churches. It is easy to normalize them, to universalize them, and we find it difficult to understand and we even become offended when we we hear that our homes and our churches are inhospitable to people of other races and cultures. But if we are going to be a church where Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, We must be willing to do the hard work, the hard work of examining our assumptions about what is essential to the gospel and what is not. And if there are cultural elements to our faith and practices that that diminish or displace or distract from the gospel in any way so that people of other races and cultures find our churches and homes inhospitable, we must be willing to change. And I can tell you, this is, this is hard work. This is sometimes painful work. So how do we do it? Listen, lament, and repent. I'll finish with those. Listen. Invite someone into your home for dinner who is of a different race or culture. Ask them if they would be willing to tell you their story. And if they say yes, listen. Listen well. Listen not to uh, diagnose or to scrutinize, or to fix their problems. Listen to understand and believe. Listen to understand and believe. Listen. Second, lament. Lament. Corey Porter, CEO of Christian Solidarity Worldwide, describes how she, as a black woman, was feeling distraught and saddened and angry in light of some recent racial tensions and demonstrations in America. She describes how her heart was beginning to be filled with hatred and hardness. And as she sat in church one Sunday morning, an older white woman noticed Corey, who knew what Corey was feeling. And she walked down from the balcony and she embraced Corey and wept with her. And Corey said, It's really hard to hate someone when they are weeping with you. There is communion in community. There is hope in singing laments together, even if the conditions don't change. And lastly, repent. Every culture, every person, even every church, has its idols and blind spots. Every church. Ask the Lord to reveal yours. And when he reveals them to you, repent. Personally and corporately. Repentance does not mean groveling. It means we're willing to acknowledge the ways that we have wittingly or unwittingly built unnecessary walls, unnecessary walls that alienate, and we're committed to tearing them down brick by brick. And again, this is hard work. But we can take great comfort and find great encouragement In the fact that it is Christ, by His Spirit, who is building His church, His body, into a dwelling place for God. The barrier is broken. So brothers and sisters, let us walk together in light of this reality. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ so that his body might be torn and broken, that his blood might be shed. Thank you for the cross of Jesus where the ground has been leveled for all people, from every culture, language, tribe, race, ethnicity, Thank you, Jesus, that there is no dividing wall of hostility within the body of Christ, in Christ. I pray for my brothers and sisters here at Blessings, that they would be a church, that they would be a people who live out the reality that in Christ there is one new human race, that he is building up his church, together in one household. Would you help us to listen, to lament, and to repent, however you are calling us to do those three things, as a church and as individuals and as families. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.